I hope everybody's doing okay today. Been enjoying the warm weather out there. But I'm so glad you came to worship this morning. Um, this morning we have one of our membership who um, is facing knee replacement Friday. And so she wanted us to pl- pray for that. And there's a lot of other things going on in her family right now that she needs prayer for. So I'm going to ask if Debbie Smith would come into place. And she doesn't know I'm going to do this, but Holly Allman, I want to call her up. She's going to be, uh, we told you that Jennifer Walker is going to be taking a semester off from Iwana's. And uh, Holly is going to be taking her place for a semester to give her a break. And now Holly didn't know I was going to do this to her, but I'm going to have us pray over her as well as she steps into this position for a semester uh, coming up pretty soon. And if you would like to gather around and pray for these folks, we would like to invite you to do that at this time. A lot of things going on. We've got a family from our church that's on a mission trip right now, and we want you to pray for them, continue to pray for them for safety and for fruitfulness on that missions trip. Um, We have prayed for a lady in our congregation the last couple of weeks, and many of you know who I'm talking about, and she was diagnosed with breast breast cancer, um, but they believe they've caught it just as early as they possibly could, and it's extremely treatable. But we want you to continue to pray for her. We prayed and we wanted God to just make sure everything was clear. But that wasn't his choice. And the thing about God is he's sovereign. And we trust his sovereign choices. But at the same time, we know he loves his people. And we know that he's going to see them through. And so uh, we're going to pray over these folks this morning, pray for our service. And I just would ask, if you feel like doing this this morning, I'd like to invite you, if you're in the pew, I'd love to invite you to reach your hand out toward these folks as we pray over them, just as a sign of solidarity among God's people. Father, we come this morning, and we thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We thank you he did not stay dead in that grave. The religious leaders of his day the most powerful empire of his day all came against him and he allowed himself to be crushed for our sins for our transgressions but he did not stay dead we thank you for the resurrection power we thank you that the same power that lived in him resides in us if we know him through the Holy Spirit And so, God, we may be in a situation right now that needs resurrecting. We may be down in in many different ways. It could be our health. It could be our mental health. It could be family matters, God. It could be all sorts of things. But we know that resurrection power is able to bring us up even out of the deepest pit, set us on a solid rock so we can praise your name. And so, Father, we come today to one who we pray for one today who is facing a knee replacement. And God, that can be a a really serious thing. And so we pray that you'd go ahead of her. You would protect her. You would give wisdom to the medical community. Make sure that everything goes well here, God. And we'll be able to praise you for that. And we know that there are other things going on. um, Other family members who are sick and are going through trials. And so there's a lot of burden right now. And so God, we just pray that she would be able to roll those burdens off of her back and onto the strong back of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we anoint, we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We pray for blessing, we pray for healing, we pray for protection. And God, we are trusting you that you are good and that your word will not return void and that you will accomplish your purposes in this situation. And now, God, we are thankful for those who volunteer here at this church. We are thankful for those who dedicate their lives to reaching people with the gospel. And Father, we thank you for Holly and how she has stepped up. There has been uh, an opportunity here. And we thank you for Jennifer and the work she's done with our Awanas group. But we thank you that uh, Holly is stepping up into that position for a semester. Come August, she's going to be in that position, God. And we just pray that you would bless her, you would protect her, you would make the ministry she does fruitful. And so in the name of the Father and the Son, And the Holy Spirit, God, we pray that your spirit would just come upon her in a new way. And God, that the children of this church and this community would be greatly affected by the ministry that she does. God, we come to you asking you, you would bless our time together. God, we thank you that you make us one. You draw us together in unity through the Holy Spirit. 
God, we thank you, though, that though we may have diverse thoughts and diverse backgrounds and, and everything else, God, you bring us together in one body, and we thank you for that today. We pray that your word would come forth in power. We pray that when we leave, when we exit these doors, that we would be more like Jesus than when we came in today. And when we leave, God, I pray that we would not just go out and go through our daily routine, but that we would truly be a witness in everything that we do and everything that we say. We thank you that you call us to be salt and light, and we pray that you would help us to do that as well. We love you. We praise you. We exalt your name above all names. The name of Jesus is to be glorified. And it's in his name we pray all these things. And Rushwood said together, amen. Thank you for praying with us this morning. As you return to your seats, I just want to reiterate, um, Jason mentioned it in announcements, but we do have a purple sheet, which is our church survey. It's been about three years since we've done a church survey. And the last time we did a church survey, it was in view of making major changes, and that's not where we are right now. But we kind of want feedback from you all to know where we are on things. And so we'd ask that you fill that church survey out. It's only about eight or nine questions, depending on how you are counting those. So it won't take you a long time if you would please do that before you leave today. The box is in the back right in front of the sound booth. And it's anonymous. You don't have to put your name on there. So please help us out in doing that. And we'll be really appreciative to you. I want to show you a video to set up my sermon this morning. Let's watch that together. You know, there's been so many times in my life where I've felt unworthy or unqualified, but God would just do something so cool in the midst of it. And one of those times was when I was a junior at the University of Florida, and we are getting ready to play Tennessee. And I see some of my teammates putting different eye blacks under their eyes, and uh, they're putting, like, their mom's name or their area code under their eyes. And so I start to think, you know, I, I wonder if I could put something under my eyes that maybe could encourage someone or inspire someone. So I was like, well, God bless. I don't know. And I was like, well, Philippians 4.13. I could do that. You know, I can do all things through Christ's strength as me. I was like, that'll be, that'll be good for a football player. So I put it under my eyes. We were blessed to win because it was Tennessee. And um, it really wasn't that big of a deal. After the game, a couple of local newspapers wrote about it, but it wasn't that big of a deal. But I kept wearing it under my eyes every single game. And as probably a lot of you know, Gator fans are very passionate. So four, five, six weeks later, they're selling it at the Gator bookstore, at the Florida library. <laughs> you have thousands of fans showing up to games wearing Philippians 4.13 under their eyes. And I honestly believe half of them don't even know what it means. I had one guy, his name was Phil, come up to me and say, hey, did you wear that under your eyes for me? It's <laughs> like, no, it's a Bible verse. <laughs> what are you talking about? And um, so we get to the SEC championship game at the end of the year, and we're getting ready to run out of the tunnel. And football's kind of one of those things where it's you have such tunnel vision. It's just one thing at a time, one thing at a time. And, as I was getting ready to run out of the tunnel, I really felt like God was putting in my heart to change the verse. I was like, really, right now? And But I realized that if we won, we'd be playing a national championship on one of the biggest stages that I might ever get. And so that would be the right opportunity to change the verse. And so we were blessed to win that game. And six weeks, the next six weeks leading up to national championship, I was agonizing and really contemplating what verse I was going to go with. And God kept bringing it to my heart and my head, John 3, 16, because it's the essence of our Christianity. It's the essence of our hope. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's what gives us hope as Christians. So I decided to go with that. And so two days before the, the game, I went up to my parents' hotel room in Miami, Florida. And I was like, Mom, Dad, I've decided to change the verse. And I'm going to go with John 3.16. My mom's super sweet and supportive. Oh, that's great, honey. My dad's like, well, have you told Coach Meyer? Because... <laughs> He says he just likes his routines, but that dude is so superstitious, it's ridiculous. So he's like, you really need to tell him. So we were right down the street at FAU practicing. We finished our last practice for a national championship. I said, hey, Coach Meyer, can I talk to you for a second? He's like, yeah, how you feeling? Your arm good, leg good, you ready for the game? I was like, yeah, I'm good. Um, you know that verse I wear in my eyes? He's like, yeah, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ's strength with me. I love it. I was like, well, I'm going to change that verse tomorrow night. What? What are you talking about? You can't change that verse. That verse got us here. <laughs> it didn't get us here. So after a couple minutes of explaining it to him, he totally was supportive and understood. And honestly, after that, I didn't even really think about it. I just went out there and tried to win the championship game. We were blessed to win. And two days later, I was at Ballyhoo Restaurant in Gainesville, Florida with me, my mom, my dad, my aunt, and um, Coach Meyer. And 
Coach Byron gets a call, and he's like, uh-huh, 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 all right, bye. And I was like, who is that? He said, that was Steve McLean here as our PR guy at Florida. So what do you have to say? He said, did you know that during that game, 94 million people Googled John 3.16? And honestly, my first thought was, how the heck do 94 million people not know John 3.16? <laughs> Hashtag Sunday school. It's like the first thing you hear, you know? But I was just sitting in Hill restaurant, just so humbled at how big that God is that we serve and how he wants to do amazing things in us and through us. And when we just step out and show a little faith or a little courage or we just decide, hey, it's okay to be a little bit different than everybody else, what God can do in our lives. And that game just happened to be in 2009, January 8th. Well, exactly three years later, January 8th, 2012, we just happened to be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers and I never even thought about John 3.16 one time, so I can't take any credit for it. I just tried to go out there and win a playoff game, and we were blessed to win this crazy playoff game in overtime, and I run in and try to, you know, shower really quick and change because I wanted to go celebrate my family, so I'm running to go and do my press conference really quick. And uh, right before I walk into the press conference room, Patrick, our PR guy, jumps in front of me. He says, Timmy, do you realize what happened? I was like... Yeah, we just beat the Steelers. We're going to play the Patriots. Like, let me do this. He's like, no, do you realize what happened? I was like, I guess not. He said, Timmy, it's exactly three, three, not three years from the night you wore John 316 under your eyes. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And he was like, no, you don't realize. During the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per completion were 31.6. Your yards per rush were 3.16. The ratings for the night were 31.6, and the time of possession was 31.06. And during the game, 90 million people Google John 3.16, and it's the number one trending thing on every platform. And I was just standing there in that hallway getting ready to do this press conference thinking that that night was about a football game. And it really wasn't, because the God that we serve is such a big God. And standing in that hallway, I knew that it was something so much more, because the God that we serve is a God of miracles, as we're going to hear today, and it's a God that does pretty amazing things in us and through us. And I think we just have to be willing to step out and say, here you go, God, I'm going to give you my fish and, and my loaves of bread, and watch what he does with it. But the God we serve can do pretty awesome, amazing things. And so if we're just faithful, God will use us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today we're continuing our series, The Bible's Greatest Hits, with what is probably the most well-known verse, at least full verse, in the Bible, John 3.16. This is the gospel in compact. This is the gospel in miniature. It tells the heart of the story of God and mankind in only 25 words. We hear the gospel story. There's five major parts to John 3:16. The first one is God so loved the world. The second is he gave his only begotten son or some translations say his one and only son. The third part is whoever believes in him. The fourth is should not perish. And the fifth part is but have everlasting life. Today we're going to take those five parts part by part and we're going to dive into them. We're not going to do them necessarily in that order but we're going to break down what many consider to be the greatest scripture in all of the Holy Bible. Let's take it this morning part by part. The first part of John 3.16 that I want to talk to you about this morning is should not perish. Should not perish. Because the first thing you need to know is that all of mankind, including me and including you, we have a problem. All of us have a problem and that problem according to God's word is we are perishing we are perishing 
There's two meanings to the word perish, and I want to talk to you about both of those this morning. The first meaning of the word perish is to suffer death, typically in a violent, sudden, or untimely way. Church, nobody gets out of here alive. No one gets out of here alive. It's been said that it is the ultimate statistic. 100 out of 100 people die, each and every one of us. We're going to eventually stop breathing, we're going to turn cold, and life is going to leave our body. There is a physical perishing that all of us have to go through. And so therefore there is a grave, and the grave is a problem that has to be dealt with. The grave is an issue that has to be overcome. That's the first meaning of perish, and that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not saying that you won't perish in that physical sense. It makes no promise about that. But the second meaning of perish is to suffer complete ruin or destruction. To suffer complete ruin or destruction. And spiritually speaking, this is what John 3.16 is speaking about. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9 through 9 says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. If you want a definition of what hell is, there's the definition. Hell is to be separated from the glory of God. That's the most simple definition I can give you. You are shut out from the glory of his might. You are shut out from his presence. You are separated from the very source of life, the one who loves you, the one who created you, the one who knows you, the one who made a way for you to come back to him. You are separated eternally, and that's what hell is. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 through 11 says, They too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Now, this portion of Revelation is specific to a specific time and a specific future event. At least I believe it's a future event. But it also gives us a picture of what things will be like for those who take the wrong path, for those who do not accept the glory of who God is. What this verse is saying is our ultimate problem is that our ultimate problem is God. We have a problem with God that must be overcome. We are separated from Him. The Bible teaches us in Romans, we are at enmity. That means that we are against Him. And because of that and because He is holy, then God is against us in our natural state. In a certain sense, we are against Him. God will judge us for our sins. And you say, but Brent, that's not the God I serve. The God I serve, the God I believe in is loving and he's full of grace and he's completely forgiving and he would never send one to hell. And I want to say this with as much love as I can muster because I want you to know God how he really is. But if you serve a God who is completely loving, completely forgiving, his holiness never comes into the picture, his wrath never comes into the picture, then you are serving a false God. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, yes, God is loving, and God desires that all men would come to a knowledge of who he is and be saved. But he is also just. God will not leave the unrighteous unpunished. And so if you want a picture of who God truly is, you have to serve a God, all of who he is, all of his attributes. The God of the Bible is loving, he's full of grace, he's very forgiving, but he's also holy, and he is judgmental against unconfessed sin. 
And he will ultimately tell some of us, depart from me, I never knew you. I hope not. I pray not. I work against it. But there will be some, most likely, sitting in this room right now that at the end of everything, God will look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be one of those people that God looks at at the end of all things and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. That's what I want to hear. That's what I work to hear. But I'm just telling you this morning, I have to tell you the truth. I have to tell you the truth this morning that this verse is teaching us. John 3.16 addresses our problem. Mankind without God is perishing. You have to understand that. John Wesley taught many years ago that in order to come into God's grace, you must first understand his law. You must first understand that you are lost in order to be saved. And so that's the first part of this verse. We are perishing without God. But I'm happy to announce this morning I don't have to leave you there. Wouldn't that be a bad place to end this sermon? Wouldn't that be terrible if I ended there and said, you are perishing now let's go and have lunch. Didn't, would not do that to you, and I'm so happy that I don't have to do that to you. I don't have to leave you there. I'm happy to announce that there is something more. In the midst of all that, that we have sinned, that we are separated from the love of God in a real sense or in an eternal sense because of our sin and because of his holiness, in the midst of all that, I can report to you that God still so loved the world. In the midst of all that, I'm glad somebody said amen because that's a real good amening point right there. God still so loved the world. In the midst of all that we've done wrong, in the midst of the times that we have rejected him and done our own thing, he still loves us. He still has an offer of grace to us. It's just like a father who still loves his children even when they've done wrong or they've made poor decisions. Max Lucado, who was a very famous Christian author, I think he's probably sold more Christian devotional literature than anybody in history. I think I read that statistic a while back. But he tells a story of his daughter when she was really little, when she was just a couple of years old. And they took her to the beach for the first time. And his little daughter's out on the beach, and she's running up and down. And all of a sudden, she bends down, looks at the sand, takes a handful of sand, and sticks it in her mouth. And so now she's got a mouth full of sand. And he said that he knew she had something when she put that sand in her mouth. She had something in her that needed to come out. She had something in her that was not ultimately going to be good for her. She had something in her that was not supposed to be there. But he said, in the midst of all that, Max said, I looked down at my little two-year-old daughter with a mouth full of sand, and she was still my daughter. And I still loved her. And I still cared about her. And she was still my child. She did not stop being my child because she had sand in her mouth, because she had made a bad decision, because she had taken something into her life that wasn't supposed to be there. She was still my daughter, and I still loved her just as she was. But he said, I also knew that I couldn't leave the sand there. Something had to change. That had to be removed. The sand needed to come out. The word love in John 3.16, when it says, For God so loved the world, and we usually think the word so there means God loves so much, loved the world so much. And that, that's not a bad reading of that, but probably more specific is this is saying this is how God loved the world. This is how God loved the world, for God so loved the world. But the word love there in John 3.16, there's about four different Greek words for love in the New Testament but this one is a very specific word that's in John 3, 16, and it's the word agape. That means God's love. It's a love that comes from God. It's a love that is a love that is special to God. Now, he can share it with those who believe in him and have put their trust in him, but it is ultimately a love that loves the unlovable. It's like when your little child has sand in their mouth, and it's not the most lovable thing that you've ever seen in the world, but they're still your child. You still love them no matter what situation they get in. Or maybe when they get older and they grow up and they break your heart with decisions, 
They break your heart with things they have done in their lives and paths that they have chosen. It breaks your heart and you know it's not good for them, but they're still your child and you still love them. Even though, from a worldly standpoint, this child is now unlovable, God's love, agape love, says I love you anyway. I love you anyway. I still love you. And that's how God feels about his human creation. That's how he feels about this world. For God so loved this world. What a great love of God. Aren't you glad that God loves us like that? Aren't you glad that's how he feels about you? Aren't you glad that the first time you messed up, he didn't just kick you out and have nothing to do with you anymore? Aren't you glad that he keeps working with you? He keeps drawing you. He keeps coming back to you. He keeps speaking to you. He provides people every once in a while that come along and speak into your life. He provides his word that can counterbalance some of the things in this world. He provides his Holy Spirit that draws you. And by the way, you cannot be saved unless the Holy Spirit draws you. The Holy Spirit has to draw you. Then we respond in faith to the drawing of the Holy Spirit. I like what A.W. Tozer said. God is always first. He's the primary mover. He's the one that's reaching out to us because he loves us so much. I'm glad that I have a God who loves me like that. I'm glad that I have a God who still loves the world and still loves me. This love is a love that loves the unlovable. But the Bible tells us, it goes on to tell us that true love is a love that does something, not just a feeling or a saying. It's very easy to say, I love you. The words can roll off of your tongue really easily, and you can say, I love you. And it's, it's really easy to feel warm and fuzzy thoughts about somebody, and you think, well, that's love. But love, in the Bible, in the biblical sense, is always an action. It always does something. It starts in the heart, but it moves out into the world. And God didn't just love us in his words, and he didn't just love us in his thoughts. God loved us by doing something for us, something that would change us, something that would change our situation. And John 3.16 says that God loved us by giving his only begotten son. His only begotten son. We know that God loved us because he gave us Jesus. That's how we know ultimately above everything else God has given us a beautiful world. He's given us life. He's given us intelligence. He's given us an ability to work. He's given us family. He's given us all these blessings and those things are great but ultimately how we know that God has loved us is he gave us his son. He gave us the very best thing he had. He gave us the word made flesh. He gave us Jesus Christ. Above all that's how we know that God loves us. God loves us through giving us his son. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit knew full well that Jesus in coming to this world was going to die for our sins. Can you imagine that, those of you who are parents? And I want you to understand, when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we don't mean a biological son. In the Jewish sense, a son was equal to or a part of. There was a sense in which that word was used in Old Testament times and even in New Testament times. When the Pharisees were looked at and said, you guys are the sons of Satan or sons of the devil, that didn't mean that they were biologically the sons of Satan. It meant they were part of what he was doing. Other times it talks about those who are part of God. But Jesus, in a very special sense, was the Son of God. But can you imagine those of you who are parents giving your child to die for people who you know would not appreciate, not necessarily appreciate what he had done for them, for, to put him in a situation where people would spit upon him and mock him and nail him to a cross? Can you imagine parents sending your child into that because you had that much love for the people who were going to kill him? But that was God. That's where God was in all this. This was his heart. All throughout the history of the Jewish people, there was this idea that the death of a good man atoned for the sins of the people. You say, you know, Christianity is not connected to Judaism. Oh, it is very deeply connected to Judaism. There was this idea in the Jewish culture that when a good man died, it atoned for some of the sins of the people of Israel, of God's people. It, it goes way back. In fact, sometimes, sometimes Jewish rabbis would say, may God make my death an atonement for my people. 
They believed that the good that they had done, they had done so much good in their lives, they had been such good people that their death would make up for some of the bad things. It was almost like an offering that would make up for some of the bad things that were done by God's people. So if the death of a good man would atone for the sins of some of God's people, what would the death of a perfect man do? What would the death of God's own son do? If the concept was there that a good man's death would atone for some of the sins, a perfect man, God in the flesh, a divine person who never sinned one time, what would that do? Well, it would have to save the world. It would have to save the world. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus gave his life as a ransom. It's almost like a kidnapping had happened, and Jesus gave his life as the payment to bring the children back home. Jesus is described in the scripture as a brother to us because he lived as one of mankind. It's like our other older brother laid his life down so the other children in the family could come back to the father's house. That's what Jesus did for us. God gave his only begotten son for us. He died that death on the cross and I describe it so many times, the horror the terrible things that he went through on that cross. But above all, he took the sins that I have committed and that you have committed on himself at the cross. That was the worst thing. Worse than the beating. Worse than the piercing of the nails. Worse than the crown of thorns. Worse than the spear stuck in his side. Worse than the spitting and the mocking and everything else. Worse than the taunts. Worse than all of that was Jesus took our sins on himself. And he offered, as he took our sins on himself, he offered his righteousness, his goodness, his life to us. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Our sins on him, his life on us. And that happened at the cross. Praise God for that. I love the song that we sang this morning, Hallelujah for the Cross. If it wasn't, it's not the actual wood of the cross did anything. It was the act that was done upon the cross by Jesus Christ. He laid his life down for us. He came to die for us. Not righteous people, not good people, people lost in sin. And Jesus laid his life down for each and every one of us. Jesus died for us. So how do we accept then? If we're in trouble and then God has loved us so much that he's done something about it and that something is his son, his only begotten son who he sent to die for us then how do we appropriate what has been done? You know, a gift is no good if you don't receive it. On Christmas morning, I have gifts. My wife and I have gifts wrapped up for our four kids. And you better believe that they don't sit there and say, oh, that's a gift for me? Well, you know, just hold on to that. Maybe I'll get to that later. No, they dive in. They accept that gift. They open it. They start to use that gift. They rejoice in that gift. They, use, they, they appropriate that gift into their life. Otherwise, it would be no good. It could just sit in the closet on and on, and it would absolutely do them no good, and it would really never be a gift in their life. So the question is, how do we accept what Jesus has done for us? How do we accept what God has done for us? How do we tap into the sacrifice he made for us? And the Bible gives a very simple answer. By believing. We appropriate that through faith. We appropriate, appropriate that through belief. John 3.16 says, King James says, Whosoever, but some of the modern translations say, Whoever means the same thing. Whoever believes in him. First of all, what does the word whoever mean or whosoever? What does that mean for us? Well, I looked it up. When the Bible says whoever, I looked it up, I did a little research, I went into the, the Greek language there and I studied it all out. And when the Bible says whoever believes, what it really means is whoever believes. It, whoever, whoever, whoever believes, whoever puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. I reject out of hand, and I know some churches preach this and some theologies preach this. I reject out of hand that Jesus' death was only for part of mankind. Jesus died for the world. 
Jesus died for everyone who, would, who has ever drawn breath and ever will draw breath. Jesus died for them. Jesus died so they might have a chance at salvation. If you think you're too far gone, you're not too far gone. If you think you've done too much, if you think you've done something that God cannot forgive, you're wrong. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. That means anyone. That doesn't mean a select few. That means anyone. If you have breath in your body, Jesus died for you. Don't let the devil trick you. Don't let anything else be said that you believe. Jesus died for you. We used to sing a song when I was growing up years ago. Whosoever will, whosoever will, send the proclamation over land and hill. Tis a loving Father calls the wanderer home. Whosoever will may come. If you have breath in your body, it's not too late. If you have breath in your body, you can come to Jesus Christ and he will accept you and he will clean you up. But you have to come in belief. You have to come in repentance. You have to come on his terms. You know why? Because he's God. You're not God. I'm not God. He's God. You come on his terms or you don't come at all. But he has an invitation for you. He has a table prepared for you. If you have a pulse, Jesus died for you. And so that's what whoever means in that verse. But the benefits of Jesus' death, he died for everyone. But the benefits of his death will do nothing for you if you don't put your faith in him. It's only appropriated, it only works when we take it into our lives. So the word believe is also key there in that verse. The word believe doesn't mean some of the things that people think that word means. That sounds a little bit like the Prince's Bride if you've ever watched that movie. But anyway, that word doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means necessarily. The word believe does not mean a mere mental agreement. I can agree with something in my mind. I can give mental assent to something in my mind. But that's not the kind of belief that's talked about in this scripture. James chapter 2 and verse 19 says, You say that you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. That's almost sarcastic. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. But yet they're not saved. Quoting A.W. Tozer, I guess, a little bit this morning, he said, the devil, Satan, is a better theologian than any of us, and he's a devil still. It's not just knowing that makes you right with God. That's not the kind of belief that's being talked about here. So belief has to be more than just mere mental agreement. And the word believe in John 3.16 is more than just a one-time belief, just a passing belief, like yeah, I believed in Jesus last Monday. Now I don't know. Now I don't know if I'm still there, but I think I believed in him. It's not that sort of belief that's described. The Greek word for belief in John 3.16 is actually in a, in a uh, tense that means believes and keeps on believing. Not that you believed one time and then you left the path. Or Sometimes people say, yeah, I got saved in, you know, 1982. Well, what's it meant to your life? Well, really not much of anything. I just kind of went back to living how I did before. But yeah, I went down to the altar and I prayed and I got saved. That's not the kind of belief that's described in this verse. This verse is describing a belief that continues on. I have believed in Jesus Christ. Tomorrow I will believe in Jesus Christ. The next day I will believe in Jesus Christ. He is my life and I am putting my faith in him. And it's not a one-time event, but it's a lifestyle. It's a journey. It's a walk. That's the kind of belief that's described here. I, I hate to tell you, if you think that you knelt at the altar one time and you prayed and you got up and you moved away and nothing changed in your life and you just lived however you, you were living before, you didn't get what you think you got. It will change your life. Knowing Jesus will change your life. I'm not saying every bit of it changes overnight. That's not what I'm preaching to you this morning. But it will change your life. It is an impossibility that the God of the universe would take up residence in your life and you would stay the same. So if you stayed the same, you did not get what you thought you, get. you, need, you uh, thought you got. You need to come back. You need to revisit things because Jesus will change your life and the belief will continue on. Now you fit that into your theology wherever it fits. But that's what the verse is saying, believes and keeps on believing. Not a past tense, but a continuous action of belief. Christianity is not a one-time event, it is a lifetime walk. 
there's another thing that is not what this word belief is saying here. It doesn't mean just mental agreement. It doesn't mean just a one-time event. What it actually means, this event is that you are putting your full weight on Jesus Christ. The full weight of your life. You are believing in him. You are resting everything on him. Look, I'm, I, look, I'm not promoting gambling or anything like this, but I'm rolling the dice on Jesus. I'm putting everything on him. I'm wagering it all that he is who he said he was and I'm going to live my life according to that, and I'm putting the weight of my life on Jesus Christ. I can believe that this pew right here can hold me up. I can believe that all day long. I can say, I'm a big boy, but I think this pew will hold me up. I think it's strong enough. I've seen it hold up other people. John's smaller than me, but, it, but anyway, it's holding him up, so I can do calculations, and I can say, I believe this pew will hold me up, and that's a mental belief. might even be a one-time belief, but unless I actually sit down and I actually rest on this, and I actually put that belief into action, I'm not really believing. This is what John 3.16 is talking about. Do, have you put the weight of your life on Christ? Have you put the weight of your life on who he is, what he's done, who he said he was? Look, if you're not there yet, if you've still got mental barriers that are separating you, work through some of those things. Study, research. Don't just take anybody's word for it. I believe if you really test who Jesus was, the facts will bear out Jesus is who he said he was. And I believe he is worth putting your faith into. By the way, it's not just blind faith. It's not just blind faith. You can have evidence for him, but eventually you have to make that leap and you have to put the weight of your life on Jesus Christ. That's the kind of belief that John 3.16 is talking about. Last phrase, last clause here. We're moving pretty quick this morning, but that's probably, probably a good thing. Have everlasting life. You're in trouble, but God loved you. God sent his son to do something about it. If you'll put the weight of your life on him, if you'll believe in him, then you will have everlasting life. What is the blessing that we receive from putting our faith in Jesus Christ? Well, look, I believe we receive blessings in this life. I do. I believe that I have a better life serving Jesus than I could have any other way. I might be richer another way. I might be more liked another way. I might have more friends another way. But I don't believe there's a better life that I can have in this life than putting my faith in Jesus Christ. Best life I can have. I don't want to go Joel Osteen on you, but it's my best life right now. The best life that I can have, putting my faith in him. But that's not the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing is we receive everlasting life. From a negative sense, we don't receive the punishment of God that we deserve. That's called mercy. God gives us mercy. Aren't you glad that he doesn't hold our sins against us when we're in Jesus Christ? Aren't you glad he forgives us? Aren't you glad that he allows us to move on? and get past where we were and walk with him and he doesn't hold our, our sins, our mistakes, the wrong things we've done against us. So we don't perish under God's judgment and that's a blessing. But positively, and this is called grace, grace is when we get the good things that we don't deserve. He does good things for us. And by the way, grace is not just for me, it's for you too. Don't receive grace from God and then withhold it from other people okay we all need grace if, if there, there's not a person under the sound of my voice and there's not a person who's watching online that doesn't need grace and hasn't needed grace we need the grace of God because we've all sinned and we've all fallen fallen short of his glory we need his grace but positively he gives us the grace that we receive everlasting or eternal life some translations actually put it backwards, and in the Greek, the words are backwards. Instead of saying we receive eternal life or, or uh, everlasting life, it actually says life everlasting. And that's how it's put in the Greek when you go and you study the Greek. The words are backwards. So I wanted to kind of break it down like that. The word life, if we look at the phrase life everlasting, the word life is a special kind of life. Just like we talked about agape is a special kind of love that God has for us. The word life is a special kind of life. The Greek word is zoe. It's where we actually get the, the girl's name Zoe. But it's zoe and it means God's life. The life 
of God. It's a life that only he has. God's the only one who has this life. The angels don't have it. They derive it from him. They, they live because of him. We don't have it. We derive it from him. He's the only one who possesses this kind of life. So it's a God life. It's God's personal life that he has. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have within them. He has within him God's life, Zoe. So it's a life that is special. A literal translation would be that we have God's life. If we were to translate life everlasting very literally, it would be that we have God's life in us for all the ages to come. For all the ages to come. John chapter 5 and verse 24 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. If we have this eternal life, we get it from God, it is his to give and his alone, but he offers it to us as a free gift through the work of Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. If you had 10,000 years to work and earn this eternal life, you could not work long enough to earn it. It is a free gift of God. When we receive it and if we keep in relationship with Jesus Christ, we have received eternal life and we have crossed over from death to life. That's why the evangelist Billy Graham said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. You can't truly kill a Christian. Someone who is truly in Jesus Christ, you truly can't kill them. They have eternal life. Yes, this physical body may perish, but the spiritual life is everlasting in Jesus Christ. You cannot kill a true believer. That's why the Apostle Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is what, church? Gain. Or some translations say, even better. For me to live is Christ and to die is even better. I don't know, Paul said, I don't know if I want to hang around here and keep doing God's work or if I want to go on and be with him. I think for right now God's going to leave me to stay around here and do his work. But I tell you what, heaven's looking better by the day. Heaven's looking better by the day. I can't wait to go. I said this week on on Facebook, uh, there's some days all I can say is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. You take me right now, I'm ready to go into your presence and to see that eternal life, be part of that eternal life which I have received through Jesus Christ. So church, that's pretty much it. That's a breakdown of John 3.16. We took it apart, we broke it down, we examined it, I tried to explain it, and I think it was pretty good even if I did do it. But it is not the greatest thing in the world to understand John 3.16. It is the greatest thing in the world to experience John 3.16. That's the greatest thing. You can understand it. We've already talked about how belief works. You can understand it and you can give mental assent to it, but that is not the greatest thing. The greatest thing is to experience John 3.16, to experience the love that God gave us. When we were dead in sins and trespasses, he gave us love. He gave us his only son. He gave us a chance at everlasting life. At eight years old, and I know you've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. At eight years old, right across the way in what is now our youth room, I knelt at an altar, and the altar wasn't magical or special or anything like that, but I knelt at the altar at eight years old. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that if I died, I did not have Jesus living in my life, and I knew I'd be separated from him. I knew that I knew enough, and I understood enough that I needed to make a decision For Jesus Christ. And at eight years old, I experienced John 3.16. And it changed my life forever. I wasn't always perfect. I didn't always make the right decisions. It took me a while to get where God was trying to take me. There was a lot. But God, from that moment on, was in my life in a special way. Y'all, at eight years old, I experienced Jesus Christ. I experienced John 3.16. And at eight years old the world I knelt down and I prayed and I asked Jesus to come into my life and to forgive me for my sins and I wanted to repent of who I was and be who he wanted me to be and I put the weight of my life on him I rested on him and I knelt down one way and I stood up a different way 
I stood up and at eight years old, the world looked different. At eight years old, things had changed. At eight years old, things that were important to me before that night were no longer important. And at eight years old, things that were never important to me before started to become important because Jesus moved into my life and he changed me. And some people who've known me since eight years old say, Brent, I've seen you mess up several times, and you probably will from here on out. But Jesus is still working on me. He's still changing me. He's still speaking to me. He still lives within me. And as long as I keep my relationship with him, I have everlasting life. I have everlasting life. I have heaven that's waiting for me. Oh, it's so good, y'all. If you've never experienced it, I just, my prayer is that you would not leave this room today before you experience John 3:16. It'll change you. It'll bless you. It'll, it's the best thing. There's not a million dollars. There's not a billion dollars that would change your life the way that Jesus can. So we're going to invite you today. I, in fact, let me do it this way. Don't, don't stand up or anything right now, but I would just ask, if you would just bow your head and close your eyes just for a second. We're going to do this old school. Is there anybody here, and I'm not going to call you out, and I'm not going to embarrass you. That's not how I operate. But is there anybody here who would say, I've never experienced John 3, 16. I've never truly put the weight of my life on Jesus Christ. I know I'm lost. I know I need a Savior. I know I need to walk with Him. Is there anybody here who would just raise your hand and say, that's me this morning? I see one hand going up. Is there anybody else who would say, I need to experience that today? God brought me here for a reason. I see another hand going up. Is there anybody else who would say, I see hands going up in the back. I need Jesus as my Savior. I see hands going up all over. Okay, you guys can look up now. I'm not going to embarrass you, not going to call you out, but the worship team is going to sing a new song, and this is quickly, this has quickly become one of my favorite songs because it talks about the rescue that's in Jesus Christ. He came to rescue us from our sin and shame. He came to rescue us from ourselves. He came to take us out of that miry clay and set us on a firm rock and establish us so that we could sing praises even unto our God. And this morning I'm going to ask that you stand as they sing this song. Yeah, the words will be on the screen. If you know it, you can sing along with them, and that's fine. But I'd also like to ask, if you raised your hand, and if you're bold enough this morning, I'd love for you to come down here. We have people who are already prepped to pray for you, to talk to you. They're not going to be intrusive. They're not going to get into your business. They just simply want to help you know Jesus Christ and to get things clear with him. And so while this song is playing, if that's for you, thankful for the people who raised their hand. But we, if we're ashamed of Jesus in here, we won't be uh, bold for him out there. We've got to stand for him. And so I'm inviting you to take a stand and say, you know what? Jesus is my Savior. I want to experience John 3, 16. Or maybe it's just a nail-down moment where you say, I've got to nail this thing down. I've got to nail this down in my soul. I've been talking to Jesus. I've been thinking about Jesus. I've been flirting with the idea of following Jesus, but I want to be all in. I talked to a fellow this week who used to come to this church, and he had testified online that he was now all in with Jesus Christ. And I sent him a message. I told him I was so proud of him. And he said, thank you, Brent, for never giving up on me. But I know that Jesus never gave up on him. That's the important thing. You can have that sort of experience. We invite you to come. We invite you to pray this morning. Empty hand, quiet in my battle. Send Jesus. 